Hello, everyone. My name's Scott, the lead pastor here. I've been gone on a couple weeks. Deb and I have been gone for a couple weeks on holidays. It's always good to be back with our family, our church family. So I'd like to pray with you for a moment as we open up. Father, we bow humbly in your presence. And how we invite you to speak to us in the most personal of terms, in life-giving and life we consider a subject that's, uh, well, I think probably very broadly applicable, beginning with me. So would you speak to me? Move us and shape us as only you can. And may we be deeply open to that, whatever that means. And we pray that and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What are you passing on? We're in this series now called Passing the Baton, and we've been using this image of the baton that is used, and this is an actual baton that's used in relay races. And we've been saying it's absolutely crucial that in the race, the baton gets passed properly from one runner to the next, that it's not fumbled that it's not mishandled and hopefully it's not dropped, that there's a clean passing of the baton from one runner to the next. And then we've been relating that image to three main biblical characters in Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Grandfather, son, father, and son. And we've seen in their story as we've spent six weeks with them now, that at times these guys demonstrate mind-boggling faith. And they just illustrate in the clearest of terms what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they invite us on the journey in a very similar way. We've seen, even in the last couple of weeks, when Brian preached a couple of weeks ago, Abraham pleading on behalf of innocent people. And the scripture pictures him as a hero of the faith. But we've also seen, and we're sadly going to see again today, that they're capable of significant failures. And so the question we've been asking, and we're seeking to see in scripture, but also ask personally is, what are you passing on to the coming generations? And so if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the first book of the scriptures, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20. And I'd like to read this chapter to you, encourage you to follow along. We always invite you to bring your Bible to church. If you don't have one, there's Bibles at the back that you can borrow. If you don't have a Bible, We'll give you a Bible. We want to have God's word in your hands. Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gahar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gahar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. 
Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not have been done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, because she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver, and this is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his slave girl so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham, Abraham's wife, Sarah. So in this passage, we see both Abraham and Sarah lying. If you recall earlier in the series in chapter 18, we saw Sarah lying there. Earlier in chapter 12, we see basically a parallel passage, except there's different characters with Pharaoh, where Abraham does the exact same thing. He's afraid Pharaoh is going to admire the beauty of Sarah and want her and kill him. So they pull the same wool over Pharaoh's eyes with very similar results. And later in this series, we're going to discover as we get to Isaac and we get to Jacob, that these guys have been watching their parents closely. And the lesson they have learned from mom and dad, among other things, is if you're uncomfortable or you're a little nervous, try to lie your way out of it. And throw whoever you have to under the bus to protect yourself. When they lie later in life, the coming generations, there's consequences that attach then as well. But today we want to talk about this idea of the quote-unquote easy way out. Is lying, which is quite prevalent in our culture, is lying really the easy way out? 
And so as I said, Abraham does it here. He did it in chapter 12. And he drags his wife along in this deceit. And so one day as they're traveling in response to God's call to do this, and they've demonstrated great faith in following God's leading, one day Abraham calls Sarah in, they sit down, and he says to her, you know, you know I love you, right? And you know that I'm committed to you. And you know that I cherish you. And I want us to be together together until death we do part. But I have a feeling as we're heading into Egypt, which was the first time this happened, and now in Gahar, I have a feeling that the powerful men there that are not followers of God in any way are going to admire your beauty and they're going to want you. And because they have nothing to do with our God, I'm afraid they're going to kill me to get to you. So I know you, you know I love you, but I want you to emphasize the brother-sister element of our relationship, and let's just conveniently forget to mention that we're married. And then he says to her in verse 13, the oldest and most manipulative lie in the book. He says this, this is how you can show my, your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. The oldest, most manipulative lie in the book. If you love me, you will do this for me. You will violate your conscience. You'll violate your principles. And you'll violate the sacred vows that you've taken. And so if you have been the one who's been the manipulator, like Abraham, or you're the one that's been coerced and manipulated, like Sarah, how did that make you feel? Don't let anybody coerce you into doing something you know is wrong by using the bold-faced lie from the pit that they love you, so you owe them. They don't love you at all. They actually loved you. There's not a chance they would ask you to violate your principles, to violate your conscience, to violate your vows. And so this incredibly great man of faith, this guy that scripture says in chapter 12, it says that that you're blessed, Abraham, and I am going to bless through you all the peoples of the world. A hero of the faith. Forgets everything that God has done for him. Forgets the promises of God. He forgets the provision of God and becomes a stone-cold coward and throws his wife under the bus. Now, some of you are sitting there, some of us, maybe me too, I hope not, but some of us are thinking, you know, Scott, I live in the real world. And when I live the safe confines of the church, when I'm out there face-to-face with 
a culture that finds it quite acceptable to lie when they feel like they need to. And I'm trying to survive and thrive in that environment. And I face all the pressures that I have that land at my doorstep all the time. Scott, you've forgotten this is just how the way the world works. You're in your little bubble. And there's just times when I need to lie to get by. And so who can really blame Abraham? Who can really blame me if I shape things to my advantage to get by? And I just shave a little here, or I smooth a little there, or I just perform some liberal calculations so that things fall my way, and I'm more comfortable. Because I'm just taking care of business. And when I say it like that, it's so inviting. It's so wonderful. It just, it almost warms the heart. The the way the rationalization just rolls gently off my tongue. And it makes lying sound so very reasonable. I, you know, Scott, I just... I lie to them because I love them. I lie to them because I want to be considerate of their feelings. And I just know in my heart of hearts that deceiving them is really in their best interest. Because I care. Why do we lie? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Let me just pick perhaps the two most prevalent ones, the two most prominent ones. I would say uh, convenience. If I had to name it, I'd call it convenience. It's just easier, it seems like, to lie at times. Because life is tough, life is complicated, and we're conditioned by a culture that says to us all the time, You deserve an easier life. You deserve the opportunity to avoid those difficult, awkward situations, those hard-to-have conversations. And so you deserve it easier. And it's just more convenient to shade the truth or let them think things that really aren't the case. The second reason It is just pride. (laughs) I need to look good. I need to feel good about myself. And so if I lie, it makes me look better than I really am. I read a bunch of studies about the frequency of lying. And of course, the studies are all over the map, just like so many studies are. Some of them suggest people are lying like all the time, like many times a day. One study I read (coughs) said zero to two times a day. One study said that, um, that most people are basically honest, but there's just a few really prolific liars that lie regularly. I read in McLean's that 
53% of university students admit to serious cheating. And the reasons they gave, and I'm not picking on university students, but this is just what was in the article. One of them, again, was about convenience, and they said, the reason I cheat is I don't have the time to put the work in to get it right. And then the second one was for pride. They said, I have to get good marks to get to the place in life where I want to be. After all, I don't want to be embarrassed. Other people will say things like this. You know, I look after paying the bills in the house, and and if my spouse doesn't know about the stuff I buy on the side, how can it hurt them? I deserve those things, and I just don't let them see my Amazon account. Someone else says, I work really hard at the office and they just don't give me enough time off. So when I told them here recently that I was sick and that I might have COVID and that I had to stay home, I really enjoyed those three days of fishing that I went on, even though I wasn't really sick. And someone else says, I already having enough trouble at the office getting along with them. So it was just so much easier to let them think that it was Sally's idea to pursue that project when it was really my idea. And that's what led to the failure. And every day we face the temptation to let something assume, someone assume something that's not really true. Because it's just more convenient. It's just easier And I wouldn't want to look bad. Is lying the quote, unquote, easy way out? Is it ever okay to tell half-truths? What, like, what does the scripture say about this? Well, there's many things it says. Let me just read a few of them. In Leviticus 19, God says, do not steal, do not lie. Do not deceive one another. In Psalm 5, it says, God says he will destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. In Psalm 34, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. In Proverbs 19, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who pours out lies will not go free. In in the Older Testament, their, their jurisprudence, the way they practiced law, was this. If it could be shown that you were bought off or that you were deliberately paid to lie about the accused in a court of law, and you were accusing them of something that wasn't true and you were lying about it, and that could be shown to be the case, you received the punishment that the accused person would have received if they'd actually done it. Actually sounds quite fair, doesn't it? In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And so scripture says that when you are in Christ, you are born again. It says in the book of John chapter 3, it says in 2 Corinthians that you become a new creation. That, that it's, you're absolutely new. And that when you're a follower of Jesus and when you're a new creation and when you're in Christ, 
The expectation is, is that we would be filled with the Spirit and that we would speak the truth in love. It says in Ephesians that when you grow up in the faith, when you begin to mature, you speak the truth in a loving way, even when it's hard to do it. In John chapter 8, it says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you do want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there was no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lying. So was lying the easy way out for our biblical characters here? Well, very, very temporarily. It seemed to, on the surface, get them out of a tight spot for a very short time. But then all kinds of consequences attached. I want you to just try to imagine with me. Okay, so Sarah gets released from Abimelech and she heads home to Abraham. Let's just try to picture this. And it's supper time and they sit down at the, whatever they sit down, the reclining area in their tent Imagine what their relationship was like as a married couple. When he got her to sacrifice herself to save him. Where she was put in the place of being faced with committing adultery to save him. Now, we know from the story that God prevented this and stopped this consequence that attached to their lives. I'll bet they were just one happily married couple as they're sitting around the table eating their lamb. As they're both thinking about the fact that Abraham said, I decided to sell you out to save myself. What do you ask your spouse to do on your behalf? Oh, I'd never do that. But if there's someone that comes to the door that I don't want to talk to, I tell my spouse to say, tell them I'm not here. Or tell them I was sick. Or tell them this or tell them that. So I can imagine the friction in their marriage was as thick as ketchup. What about some other consequences? All kinds of people, the text tells us, had serious diseases inflicted on them. When the truth comes out, Abraham is called in by Abimelech and he's humiliated by Abimelech as Abimelech, the godless man, the godless pagan, lectures Abraham on, the, on, on right and wrong. And Abraham is to be this great man of faith, this follower of the God of the Bible, and this pagan sits him down and lectures him on right and wrong. In chapter 12, Pharaoh does the same thing. Pharaoh, who was someone who considered himself to be a small g god to be worshipped, and he he himself worshipped small g false gods. 
He calls Abraham in and lectures the man of God on morality. And because of Abraham's sin, his reputation as a man of God, and to a certain extent by association, even though God did nothing wrong, by association, God himself is dragged through the mud. See, when we lie, and let's just call this for what it is, when we sin, it's not just us that is affected. So I'm standing on the front porch of one of my relatives' homes in Regina, and two of my other relatives go out on the front porch for a smoke break. Now, I don't smoke, but I went out there to spend some time with them and enjoyed all the great benefits of the secondhand smoke they were blowing my way. And uh, we're visiting, and uh, the one who likes to push buttons once in a while, um, and both of whom sort of politely tolerate at times at least what they call my religion, the one uh, starts talking about all the religious personalities who in recent days have been caught in a web of lies and sin and exposed on a national scale. And, and both of them, but in particular the one, starts to laugh at them both. And then they kind of look at me because even though we like each other and we have a good relationship, they were subtly taking a dig at me. So they want me to say something, so I said something like this. I said, yeah, you know, that's true. They did wrong, absolutely did wrong. And I am so glad that they both got caught, or however many it was they referenced, two or three. So glad that they got caught. I'm glad that their lies were exposed. But then I said, uh, but you know, then there's a guy like Billy Graham, because I thought it would be safe to mention Billy Graham, because Billy's dead now, and usually it's only good to reference people that are dead, because you know they're not going to mess up later. So I said, uh, well, you know, Billy, Billy Graham, uh, I think he stands apart from that kind of behavior. And one of my relatives who'd had a few drinks at that point says to me, ah, he just never got caught. And you know, there was really nothing I could say. I don't for a moment believe Billy engaged in that kind of activity. But how do you respond to that? Because the actions of others smear a lot of people and by association smear God. So right now, the Spirit of God is convicting some of you. I want to say this to you. Despite Abraham's shameful behavior, and it was shameful, God does not cut him off. So maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're living a lie. Or you're struggling with lying. And right now, I can imagine that the evil one is whispering something like this to you. You're rotten. You're a disgrace to the faith. God's already forgiven you X number of times for this stuff. 
you don't really think that he's going to do it one more time, do you? Let me just say to you now, do not believe those lies. Those are lies from the pit. Because the scripture says the evil one is the father of lies who comes to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. It says in 1 Peter, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And absolutely lying is wrong. Lying is sin and consequences of a little attach. But the good news is the grace of God is available. And so scripture says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess, let's just stop there. That means I don't put this off on anybody else. I don't minimize my behavior. I don't make some lame excuse about why this happened. I just have the courage to own my stuff. I did it. I did it. And I understand this was wrong. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. In other words, there's absolutely nothing we can do to compensate for that sin. You can, you can do everything humanly possible to try and restore things, and we should, but understand this, you never will completely do it. Do everything you can, but you can't completely restore it because you've broken trust. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. In other words, the grace provided resides exclusively in Jesus based on his work on the cross. This is where this stuff really practically works itself out. He is faithful and just to forgive us. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't atone for it ourselves. He forgives us and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so because of Christ, forgiveness and release and cleansing is available. And I remind you of that hope that flies in the face of the lies that the evil one might well be whispering to you right now. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Don't forget that. What are some other things we can learn from this story? Well, there's a number. One of them is there's some hardcore warnings for those that are considered mature in the faith. So I speak in particular to those that are mature in the faith. Listen to me carefully. Don't dismiss what I'm about to say. People of great faith are still capable of just about anything. That's what this passage says. During the midst of doing something great for God, we can fumble the ball on a totally unrelated matter. As a mature follower of Christ, do you ever find yourself thinking, and you'd never admit this out loud, but do you ever find yourself thinking, I could never sin in that way? I see what so-and-so did over there. I could never do that. I'm strong enough that I could never do that. 
And if we secretly, and some of us do, if we secretly harbor this kind of thinking that I'm basically immune, we are kidding ourselves. We're displaying a sense of arrogance that's very inappropriate. You know that often after a great time of closeness to God, this is when we are singled out for attack. This is why whenever someone gets baptized, when we're preparing them, we do some classes and say, here's what baptism's about, here's why we do it, here's how cool it is. This is something for everyone that's a follower of Jesus, without exception. We always say to them, just understand something. Whenever you make a public stand for Jesus, like you're going to do in the waters of baptism, which is very important to do, you will typically be singled out for attack by the evil. And don't be afraid of that. Because our God is superior to the God of this world. But just understand, you'll probably be attacked. You know, a message like this one, this passage in particular, scares me (laughs) in a good way. Because when I read it, I think to myself, if Abraham, a man of God, one of the heroes of the faith, could do the kinds of things that he did in this passage, what am I capable of? Listen to this promise from God from 1 Peter chapter 5. Be self-controlled and alert. Don't ever be smug thinking, oh, that could never happen to me. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. So it is possible, right? Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, listen to this promise, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Wow, God is just incredible in this story. He's patient. He still fulfills his promise. God helps the pagans in this story. He even uses the pagans to teach the followers of God a lesson. He saves Sarah. Even though these guys have totally botched it, he saves Sarah. He offers and he gives forgiveness. He allows consequences to attach, but he doesn't let them go to their full extent. I think God does that for us a lot. We do something and consequences attach, and we think to ourselves, oh, this is horrible. But I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be blown away at the mercy of God and how he limited the consequences of what we deserve. And in this story, he never walks away. He never forsakes them. And this is the God we serve. Like everybody, whether you're at home or in here, to bow your head with me and close your eyes. And what I want to do 
is I want us to stop and listen to the Spirit of God for a while and invite the Spirit of God to search our hearts. And then I'm going to pray a prayer of forgiveness and invite you to follow along. And as you're going to be listening to the Spirit speak to you personally, let me suggest some questions. He might have something else he'll speak to you about, but here's some some suggestions. Is there any specific place, Spirit of God, where I've been lying? Always remember, it will not be vague. It will not be general. There's nothing you can do about that. The Spirit of God will specifically identify something. Because he wants you to be repentant and right with God. Is there any specific place where I've been lying? Or have I pushed someone to do something that was wrong? Save myself. Or as a mature believer, have I been arrogant and assumed I could never do something wrong? And in just a moment, I'm going to let you pray about those things. And then if God convicts you, I'm going to get you to stand. And then I'm going to lead you just in a prayer of forgiveness and cleansing. And let me just tell you, I've prepared my heart. Let me just be honest with you. I'm going to stand. I know I'm standing already, but I'm going to stand during that prayer. Okay? Because the Spirit of God's identified a thing or two in my life. So take some time to pray silently and then I'll invite you to stand. God's put his finger on something that he wants to deal with in your life as he has in mine. I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are and then follow along with me in this prayer. And if you're not standing, just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. People are doing business with God. Let's be respectful of that. So just follow along with me in prayer. Father God, I ask you to forgive my sin of, now you just fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. Father God, I ask you to forgive my sin of, I ask you to cover it with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I accept your forgiveness. Your cleansing. And I commit in the power of the Spirit with your help to be a truth teller, you, God, to others. 
Jesus' name we pray.